Hello and welcome to another episode of Disability Exchange. My name is Caitlin Owens and I am with the Iowa University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities and I'm here with my co-host Judy Worth. Judy, you want to say hi? Hello, welcome straight from Iowa City. (laughs) Today our guest is Ron Wright who is a former LEND trainee, um, which again, LEND stands for Iowa Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities, um, a program that we run here at the Center for Disabilities and Development. And we're really excited to chat with him. Welcome, and he, flew, he just flew straight in from Chicago to join us today. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Are your arms tired? They, they are, they are tired, getting more tired because I'm holding up this cellular phone instead of using my laptop like I want to. Well, Ron, do you want to uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a little bit about who you are and things that are important to you. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm 63 calendar years old, 64 conception years old. Uh, people don't know that I've been on this earth nine months longer than I've been given credit for. So, um, and I, right now I, uh, I feel nervous because I'm not used to being interviewed for a podcast. This is my, my first. And I don't really know how to start this, but I'm just gonna launch in with what pops into my head. I was diagnosed autistic formally in July 2016, and that's one of the ways I was able to join LEND in August 2018 was this diagnosis. And before that, I did suspect that the diagnosis of autism or Asperger's syndrome, as it was known then, did apply to me. I read a book that I found in the Iowa City Library called Nobody Nowhere by Donna Williams. And she lives in Australia, or did at the time. And the way she described what her life was like, the way she thought about things, I realized was really descriptive of me. And that made my life until then made a lot more sense then. And when I started realizing that, I think that was 2005 that I read that book, uh, the fall of 2005. And I sought out a support group. I didn't know if I would find any in January 2006. And I found there was one for adults with Asperger's syndrome in Iowa City and that had formed just the month before. So I attended in January was the second meeting and that was a real relief to be in the same room as people who had the same mannerisms or traits that I did without having to explain anything. I felt really comfortable there and I can't remember if we met for one hour or two hours. I think it was one hour at that time. And we later expanded it to two hours. And as a part of learning about how I was different from other people and just the way my perspective on things, 
uh, I felt like I didn't have to justify my opinion anymore. Like, like I would get that from my family members sometimes that I would have to explain why I saw things a certain way. I didn't like that. Like I said, it was a relief to be in the same room without other, without having to explain myself to other people. And I literally felt physically comfortable there from the very first meeting. And the facilitator had developed an outline of how the, the meeting would be structured and would post that at the beginning of every meeting so that when people came in, they would see, you know, it's a real reassurance when you don't have the sense that you belong in society that neurotypicals seem to be born with or they have absorbed it through osmosis. Having this structure visually as a reminder, as well as a reminder to not interrupt somebody else to let them finish talking because when we're in an environment where we suddenly feel so at home, I can see it's a natural way of relating to somebody else that I can identify exactly with what you're saying. This is what happened to me. And sometimes people needed reminders to adhere to the structure that we had put in place or that she had developed. So uh, I attended those meetings from January 2006 practically every month for the first five years. And we moved to uh, twice a month at one point because I really didn't know of any other place where I would feel that comfortable with people that I didn't know up until that point. And so having twice a month was really great. And at one point, I think after two years, I became facilitator myself and I would leave the meetings, send out reminders every uh, two or three days before to people that, hey, we're meeting at this time at this place. And also develop my own ideas of what I wanted to introduce to the group. I had a meeting at my place where we watched the movie Horse Boy, which the subject is a young boy who's probably five years old and their family was living in Texas at the time and was available at the public library in 2012. So I had people over to watch it. So that was my idea for where else we can go with this group instead of meeting in the same room and talking for two hours and then going our separate ways. You know, I wanted to do more things, but I, I didn't seem to get a lot of response from, or at least maybe I interpreted it wrong. So around 2016, I had tapered off and stopped attending meetings, except maybe once every three or four months. And I didn't know what other outlet to socialize with people. And at work, the jobs I had, you know, I would be conversant with people, but it wasn't really anything more than small talk in my impression. And my memory of it was not very uh, social. Uh, other people seemed to be really at ease with somebody else. And for me, it was more of an effort to socialize with people at work. It was deliberate. And that I can still see that in me. But other people, when they look at me, they and 
I'm in conversation with someone, they say that I seem to be, to, to not have the traits of autism. So I take that as a compliment. I mean, I've spent a great deal of time on my own, beginning with 1991, when I sought formal counseling for the very first time. I was really distraught uh, emotionally, living in Phoenix and working there for the previous seven years and had just struggled with how to relate to people and not knowing any answer. And so it was a big risk. I mean, having been raised in a family where I was taught by my father that you don't cry when you're hurt, you know, that's really devastating for a child, in my opinion, to be taught that how you're feeling is not okay and grow up, which is really, it's impossible for anyone to act any age except what age they are. So I didn't get any, you know, reception from my family that my hurts were valid, that there was a listening audience or at least some consolation. I was the seventh born of 10 children and the second and third born to my mother and father were twins and they died within three days of birth. Uh, I, I try to remember them when I'm talking to people and they ask about my family, but I did not grow up with them. I was the seventh born. And the environment that I grew up in was uh, all I knew, really. I didn't really know anyone else's family was different than mine. And so without a perspective, I didn't know that there's another way to raise children. It wasn't until I got into 12-step support groups in Phoenix in 1991 that I knew that this, the life that I lived was really pretty, I don't want to say hurtful, but it's, uh, there was no emotional support there. I was there for three years and then I moved back to Iowa in October, 1994. But in Phoenix for 12-step adult children of alcoholics groups, there was one, at least one every night of the week. So I sort of gorged myself on that support because I really needed that support, that feeling that I belonged somewhere. And when I finally did decide to, you know, reveal more about my life, it was a relief to hear people receptive to my story and I wasn't shut down or shamed for it. So that was my precursor to uh, Asperger syndrome support group was having ACOA support groups. You know, Ron, and, I remember the first 12 step group I went to. Um, I remember saying to someone that this isn't about alcohol. This is about life and having people who really wanted to listen. So I could see how that would be so incredibly attractive when you felt like you hadn't been heard. Yes. You know? And I know that Mike had this question on here about how did you feel when you first got that diagnosis? I felt relieved that my assessment of myself was accurate and that it was also 
he described ADHD uh, also, which I can see is appropriate. I feel as though the work I've done over the years, I've mitigated some of the, the severity of what people would see in me. But yeah, it was uh, a relief to have that confirmation. But otherwise, I don't share it openly with, with many people because it's either doesn't apply or may not be appropriate at that time. But people at the in the land community, especially the class that I was attending, they, they do know that. And I remember one of the students, my fellow classmates, asked me why I didn't join in. And I think what she was saying was, why was I so closed off emotionally? And I didn't know how to answer that because I felt like I was doing my best. But it was what I was doing was more of a doingness than a beingness. And I didn't really feel comfortable with or at home in my own body. I don't know if that makes sense to you or to anyone. But I still feel as though I don't share my, a lot of myself emotionally with people. And that's, I don't know if there's anything I can do, but it's more of allowing and trusting that the people I'm with will appreciate this side of me. So it's just a matter of feeling comfortable and knowing when I can contribute and knowing more of myself, really, uh, what I'm capable of. Also, believe it or not, you know, setting boundaries, being able to say, no, uh, I'm still working on that sense that I can say no to somebody and it will be okay. And, you know, Ron, I'm curious, how yeah. would you describe your character? If you were going to pick three or four words to describe your character, well, what would you choose? What would I choose? When you say character, do you mean my mannerisms or internally? Internally. Who, okay. is, who is Ron Wright in three or four words that would describe that would give us the essence of you? Mm, that would be actor, writer, emotional wreck, and some kind of, I don't know if I want to say advocate or ambassador. I'll go with both. <laughs> uh, I saw myself as, um, when I was younger, I saw myself as a mediator between someone who may have a disagreement or upset with somebody else, even though that's, that's not my role. And I realize now that was my way of feeling that this is one thing I can do. I, I can do this, be a mediator between two people if they want it. But that's the descriptors I would use. See so you being a good mediator, you have a very just like sort of calm presence and um, can I ask a question about something? So earlier when you were talking about, you know, how it felt to get your diagnosis later in life and you talked about, I think, you know, it sounds like it kind of just confirmed these things that you had wondered about and had largely, it sounds like pieced together yourself over the previous decade. But, um, you know, I read something 
once I'm trained as a therapist about how a diagnosis should expand somebody's world and not contract it. And that's always really stuck with me. And, and I wonder if that resonates with you at all, specifically thinking about how you shared that, like for you personally to receive that diagnosis, it was welcomed information that, that just helped you kind of understand, you know, your life thus far, but that, you know, not sharing it, that it's not something you feel the need to share about yourself with other people, um, which, you know, I think is totally valid, um, you know, because it sounds like there's just a lot of other things about yourself that, you know, you maybe you share first or anyway, I just wondered if you had, if that was something that, that resonated at all. That a diagnosis should expand. Yeah. It should expand somebody's either conception of themselves or their world or their, even their access to services rather than constrict. And so I wondered if, you know, a reason for not sharing it with other people, you know, has to do with not wanting to like limit what they maybe think you're capable of, or if it's just something that you just simply don't really feel the need to share. Well, I would say part of it is because to me, it's, I don't really reveal much about myself. I don't complain. I don't see the point in complaining or blowing off steam, although I do see the the point in that. Uh, Blowing off steam means you have something you can't control and there's no way to control it. But complaining on the whole to me seems like that I'm weakening myself, that I'm saying I'm helpless. Although, (laughs) because I like to feel as though I can do something. And if I'm complaining, it means I can't do anything. And there are times that does apply, but I don't want to come across as a complainer. But one of the thing about the diagnosis that it did was it provided a boundary, a container for my sense of self. Because one thing about autism is I get lost in uh, a feeling or sensation or something that I'm trying to control or steer in a certain direction. And not having boundaries, not having a sense of what is appropriate or inappropriate, I believe is a trait of people with autism because they don't have some internal sense of constructing an interpretation of who they are, where they begin, where they end, what's not appropriate. And having the diagnosis did that for me. And whether others on the autism spectrum can relate to that or say, yes, that I I endorse that, I I don't know. But to me, I I already feel so expansive that it's helpful to have reminders, to have boundaries, to recognize when I feel tired. Yesterday, I was at an Airbnb and the hostess was really wonderful. I I felt tired after I had something to eat in the morning. And she said, oh, in another hour, we're going to go to this park where they have this really long set of stairs that goes up and up this hill. And there's all kinds of people there. 
And I thought, oh, that would be nice to go with them. But then I started feeling dizzy and I had to sit down and I said, maybe I should stay here and, and take a nap. And she said, you can do that. Or she said, maybe you need some magnesium. Magnesium would, would help. She gives me two pills and supplements and I take that. And after a while I feel better, but I think I still should probably stay home. But I say, yeah, because it's not often that I relate to someone so easily and be conversant, have the same interest in common. And, and she has an adorable uh, eight-month-old baby. So I said yes. And maybe I suffered. Maybe I should have said no and stayed at home and gotten rest, which I certainly needed. I, uh, in the middle of the day, I don't usually take a nap, but I did need it yesterday. So having some boundary, some reminder that I'm limited is helpful to me, even though I may not like it. I don't like that boundary, that hard stop. It's probably better for me to recognize that and, and pay attention. Yeah, so whether other people see this trait, this characteristic in people with autism, that's one thing that I do recognize in common. That was beautifully said. I mean, would you, this is on the same topic, but pivoting just a little bit, what would you offer as maybe a words of wisdom or encouragement to somebody who was either seeking a later in life diagnosis or had just received a later in life diagnosis? If there is a way that you can confirm that, then take steps to get that diagnosis, whether that be a university agency or a a department of a university or an individual therapist or psychiatrist. So yes, if that's what it takes, if it's some social security agency or another governmental agency, that's another avenue. And it's definitely worth it because it may confirm your suspicions, your um, idea, or it may give you a different perspective uh, on you. They may, they may say, no, this does not apply to you, but something else does. So I would suggest, yes, go ahead and seek and keep seeking until you find something that gives you an, uh, the answer that resonates internally with you. You know, Ron, you've talked about work a few times and some of the good, bad, and ugly of it. You mind sharing a little bit about what you've done for work and what you what you're currently doing and what you like and what's helped and maybe not helped? Yeah, I can do that. Um, what I've done primarily is labor-oriented jobs or semi-skilled labor jobs, and by that I mean. I can drive a forklift, load and unload semi-trailers, move pallets of product around in a warehouse. I think anyone who develops that skill can do that. And so also I worked at Pearson, which uh, they develop and send the printed tests to high schools and elementary schools and putting test books in a box so they can be shipped out. I mean, thousands and thousands of boxes. 
that is another job that somebody else can do easily. What I'm doing now is a paraeducator at a local high school, and I'm in a classroom with three other paraeducators who are working with the teacher to teach the students as much material as we can get them to absorb and taking them to PE classes. And I don't know how much of a difference I'm making there, but the teacher says she's really grateful for me to be there. And I feel as though I'm contributing something of me to this job, whereas other jobs, I never got a sense that I was making any difference beyond the physical labor I was providing. So for me, that's really rewarding to hear that and to hear the, the teacher say that she has told the vice principal, thanks. I heard this from the vice principal to say, the teacher is saying, thank you for putting Ron in my classroom. That seems like pretty strong evidence that you are making a difference, you know, and just having known you for a short while here, you know, I can imagine you being such a calm and stable and just important presence, you know, in the life of a child. That seems like a really, a role that you would be well suited for, again, just based on, you know, the 40 minutes that I've known you. Yep. And I remember when I first met you, Ron, you told me that was what you, what you hoped to do. That was your dream. So that merits a ton of kudos. And uh, I know the room you're in and I know the people you're supporting and to get that kind of praise is really speaks volumes. Well, thank you. And I don't know if you were interviewed, but I think I put your name down as a reference. Um, or Michael's. Uh, I did talk to them. You called and told me to make a call. I did what Ron <laughs> Wright told me to do. He said, you need to call and make this happen, Judy. I did my part. Oh, I don't and remember doing and that. Now, and now you've made me proud. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm grateful that I was interviewed and was hired because I have zero classroom experience uh, not even a paraeducator experience before this. So I really appreciate that I can contribute something and be a part of this little uh, group of uh, this little classroom. Yeah, it's really, really nice. You know, Ron, I know that Mike was hoping that you might share your poem with this. Is that is that something you want to do? Um, I, I thought of something else is that okay it's a absolutely a song that i've that came to me and i've have been sort of stuck to how to go further but then again i haven't really spent time and listened to what comes next in the song but the song came to me a few years ago and i've still remember it it's called lily of the valley I don't really know what a lily of the valley looks like, but I was thinking of a woman named Lily when I when I wrote it, or at least how I, I saw her. And it goes like this. There's a flower that I know 
that I love so much. I've sat and watched it grow, but I cannot touch. I've watered it until it drinks its fill, but it ever seems to need more water still. I've placed a looking glass down at its feet in hopes that it would see just what I see. The flower turned away as if to say, I cannot bear to look at me today. And those who've smelled its scent, they know just what it meant to feel a gentle touch and have it mean so much. And in my sincere affection, it sees beyond its own reflection to find the beauty inside that leaves and petals can't hide. Wow, that was beautiful. That was beautiful, Ron. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You know, so we kind of like to wrap up our podcast by asking um, everybody the same question, um, which is, what would you like your legacy to be? Hmm. I think I would say I would like it to be that I formed a bridge between people who are diagnosed autistic and the those who are neurotypical, that I provided some level of understanding that wasn't there before, and that both worlds, or at least the world of autistic people, became a little more clear to those who are baffled by it. Ron, you have given us so many gems in this time. I can't wait to go back and look at the transcripts and pull out bits and pieces. I had already written down being a human doing versus a human being as a strategy for, for living. And some of the descriptors that you talked about what it's like to live with autism are some of the most profound things I've heard professionally ever. Um, So thank you very much on behalf of all of us. We want to thank you for your time, your wisdom, and for working so hard to get here and sharing of yourself. Your song yeah. was amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. I haven't met you, but it would be nice to meet you. Yeah. You know, I think we met one time in super passing, but like literally <laughs> just like, I think actually it was the day I started at, at the you said <laughs> you were in the Lend office. But anyway, yeah. Thank you so much. This was, this was a really enjoyable conversation. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really glad to have been invited on your podcast. And thank you to our listeners. Um, Disability Exchange is brought to us by the University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. And 
supported and made good by the University of Iowa Midwest Public Health Training Center. And hopefully this is made great by our listeners as well as the people who come and share their stories, uplifting the voices of people with disabilities. Thank you all, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today on Disability Exchange. Disability Exchange is produced by the University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, which is housed at the Center for Disabilities and Development at the University of Iowa. Special thanks to Kyle Delvaux for the music contribution.